It is good to be together here on this fourth Sunday of Advent. It's the last Sunday uh, before Christmas, this time of excitement and anticipation at receiving uh, the greatest gift of all time, a Savior that has been born to us, a gift, as the video told us, a gift that truly matters. And I don't know about you, but uh, when I've seen that, that's a commercial for a sporting goods store. But doesn't it speak to us on a much deeper level? I saw that little phrase pop up at the end, give a gift that matters. Give a gift that matters this Christmas. I think there's something about stories like that that kind of tug at us because this time of year, we long for something that's deeper than just more stuff, don't we? We long for, to receive a gift that, that, that truly matters. And, and we think about that and we think about the, the anticipation, the excitement this time of year. And it seems like in the midst of everything, there's this question that always pops up and it goes something like this. Are you ready for Christmas? Have you done all your preparations? Are you ready for Christmas? And I'm sure if I asked that to all of you, there'd be a lot of different answers. Yes, no, kind of, uh, I don't really know what that means. Bah humbug, whatever your response uh, would be. But depending on your frame of mind, there's a couple different ways that you can answer that question. For some of you, when I say, are you ready for Christmas? Your mind goes to that list that you have. Maybe your, your honey-do list or your list that you have together that's on the fridge or whatever it is. And it said, are the gifts uh, all purchased? Are they wrapped? Are they under the tree? Is the house clean? Do we know what our travel plans are? Uh, do the in-laws truly know when it's going to be time to leave uh, this year? You know, um, you know all, all the things that we have, um, are the travel plans arranged? Is the Christmas card written? Is the Christmas card mailed? On and on and on and on down the to-do list. And if we can check off all those things and we can say, yes, I'm ready for Christmas. But I wonder if there's a second way, a different way to answer that question, because here's the thing. I think that there is a way of going through this Christmas season and getting everything accomplished and being ready for the holidays, and yet we miss Christmas. I wonder if there is a way to be fully prepared for the 24th and the 25th and miss the whole point and miss the gift that truly matters, that speaks to us on a much deeper level than any, any other of our preparations can. Which is crazy to think about that we, might, that we might actually miss the point of this time of year, considering all the warnings, all the things in Scripture that are pointing us towards this moment. The entire story of the Bible is pointing towards this moment in history when God's story invades our story through a tiny baby. We've been warned about this for, for thousands of years, back all the way back to the prophet Isaiah, back in chapter 9. Thousands of years before Jesus' birth, we're told about this gift that is coming our way, to be ready for it, to be ready for Christmas. In fact, let's read this together nice and loud up on the screen from Isaiah chapter 9. Let's read it together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If we knew that was coming, wouldn't that be the very top thing on our to-do list? Is my heart ready for Christmas? The most important priority that we could have this entire month is, am I fully prepared to receive the gift that God wants to give me in his Son? We know a little bit of something in the Annenson house about being excited for this gift, about being maybe a little bit too excited for the gift, but we are so ready, and that includes my son. Uh, Caleb is just about nine 
months old now, and if you don't know who he is, he's the kid that's here that normally when I'm talking, he's talking. And during the sermon, there's this really loud, chatty kid, and everybody's whispering to each other, whose kid is that? Who are his parents? Why won't they make him be quiet? You know, you've all had those experiences in church at some point. It's my kid, because you think if dad gets to yabber, then he gets to talk just the same. So if you hear him, uh, that's him. Anyway, I don't even, I, Caleb doesn't have a concept of what Christmas is. He doesn't have a concept of gift giving. But somehow, uh, he is very excited about gifts this year. We've got all our gifts wrapped, and they're underneath the tree. A lot of young parents will baby-proof their house. We haven't done that for some reason, especially when it comes to gifts, because what are you going to do, like elevate the tree way up here or something? So the gifts are right there on the floor. We've been trying to keep an eye on him until last week when his curiosity and his imagination got the best of him. And he is totally excited for some reason about finding the gift that is his. I don't know how he did this, but Tiffany and I go into the kitchen for like 20 seconds, and in that time is enough time for him to crawl from his little pad play area on that side of the living room all the way over to where the tree is. And he comes, and not only does he find a gift, he finds the gift that is for him that's underneath a stack of four or five other gifts. We're in the kitchen, and we hear, and all these gifts come crashing down on top of him. He's fine right? And just before we get back, we see him with all the strength that he can in his pudgy little arms, swing his arm around and go smack right on top of the gift. And it's, it's, it's ripped open, very similar to that. Uh, in fact, that's him uh, with the gift. And he pulls the wrapping paper out and we catch him totally busted with the wrapping paper in his hand, looking at his xylophone that he's received for Christmas. And he looks at us and he goes, ah, like that totally busted, but he totally doesn't care, right? For Caleb, he couldn't wait to receive the gift. The anticipation was overwhelming for him. He could not wait to meet whatever was in that box. How about you? Is the anticipation filling you up these days to receive the gift that comes in the most unusual of packages? What's the state of your heart as you head into another Christmas? Are you ready to receive the gift that God wants to give you? Because I'll be honest, and maybe if you're anything like me, the last couple weeks, I can say my heart hasn't always been filled with overwhelming joy, (laughs) anticipation, and excitement. It'd be a stressful time of year. I don't know what's going on in your life this morning, but it's easy for our lives, our, our hearts, and our minds to get so cluttered, right? To get so filled up with so many things that we could totally be ready for December 24th and 25th. <laughs> and we miss the gift. We miss the gift. Or will maybe this year is an opportunity for us to respond to the gift of God's love in a brand new way. And thanks to this Christmas story, we can learn a lot about what it means to respond with gratitude, with joy to the gift that God has given us. And it comes from the most unlikely group of people from the most unlikely places. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to that scripture that we just read. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. I would encourage everyone, every one of you, you may think you know this story, but I don't think you do, uh, because I didn't. And I think there's a lot for us to discover here that's not in our normal Christmas narrative. Most of the time, you'll go to uh, church around Christmas, and you'll read from Luke chapter 2. That is the main Christmas story that we read. But there is one gospel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Only Matthew tells the story of this group of people called the Magi, or as I like to call them, the wise guys. 
right? The three wise guys. And, and here they are in Matthew chapter 2. And you'll notice that our story today is actually after the birth of Jesus. And you might say, John, why are you skipping ahead? You know, it's not even Christmas. Jesus hasn't even been born. Here's why. Because what happens? This story gets lost every single year. And, and rightly so. We get really excited about the story of Jesus' birth and the angels appearing to the shepherds. But what happens then is the very next Sunday, for us, we're on to the next sermon series. We're on, you're all thinking about your New Year's resolutions. We're on to the new year. Oh, and then there's this really random story about these kings or somebody coming to visit Jesus at the manger, and we just kind of skip right over it. Well, I believe that we miss a very important lesson today about how we are to respond to the king. And so we pick it up in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, which is the region around Bethlehem, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So I hit the pause button there for a second. A few weeks ago, when we were home, I was helping uh, my parents set up and I was decorating, putting up the, the old little... Um, manger scene that I do every single year that I've done since I was a little boy. And I'm putting the angel there and Mary and Joseph and the baby and the shepherds. And as I'm setting up the wise men with their camels, it kind of hits me. I don't really know much about these guys. Like, who are they? I mean, they show up every year. They're there at your manger scene, wherever that may be. But who are they? What are they all about? And where did they come from? So as we dig deeper into this story, there's a lot we don't know about the Magi. There's a lot that scripture just doesn't tell us that scholars have speculated at. Even as I did all this research this week, there's a lot we don't know, but there's some things that we absolutely do know, and I can't wait to share with you what that is all about. For some of you, when you think of wise men, what do you think of? You think of the Christmas play that was maybe at your church uh, growing up, and uh, for me, I thought about that. I'm like, what do I know about the wise men? The only thing I know is that it was a much better gig to be the wise men in the kids' Christmas play than to be the angel because you had to wear the kind of girlish, fluffy wings. Uh, or for the guys, they could be a sheep and, and just kind of look stupid in the, in the sheep costume. Or you could be one of the magi and get to wear a bathrobe and a Burger King crown in church. And that was the gig to get. And that's about all I know and have known about the magi. But there is so much more to the story than that. And that's what we're going to dig into Today And I believe that as we do that, we're going to discover how are we to respond to this gift through the story of the Magi. So first, what don't we know? I'll tell you one thing we don't know. We don't know how many of them there were. You're saying, John, what are you talking about? That's heresy, right? We three kings of Orient are. Look again at the story. Is there a number that they give you for how many Magi that there were? Pop quiz. Yes or no? No, right? So for all we know, we could sing, we, 14 kings of Orient are, you know, whatever number you want to throw in there, we don't know. We are guessing three because of the three gifts that are later presented to Jesus, but it never says how many there were. According to ancient scholars, some would say that these magi were known to travel in groups of 12. Somebody else travel around with a group of 12 guys at some point. I just found that kind of interesting. We don't know how many there were. Another thing we know is we don't know exactly where they came from, what exact city or town they came from. Scholars would say that they came from this region known as Parthia. Go ahead and throw up that map there. And this is just kind of a, a map of, in Jesus's day, uh, a lot of the, 
the land there had recently been under Babylonian rule during the, their uh, reign and now under the, the, um, the reign of the Romans. But this area over to the right, Parthia, that region is where they kind of believe that the wise men came from. All the scripture says is they came from the east. But we know that to get from that area of Parthia in ancient Babylon all the way over to the left side of your screen by the Mediterranean Sea, Jerusalem, a little ways below that is this obscure town called Bethlehem. But to get from that region in the east where they believe they came from all the way to Bethlehem would be thousands, thousands of miles. And you might think, oh, thousands of miles, that would take, you know, maybe a couple good days drive. They didn't have the SUVs. They didn't have the four-wheel drive. They didn't have Casey's for a pit stop along the way to get some pizza and a beverage. You know, they didn't have that. We're talking about months, several months journey, especially on this speedy form of transportation known as camels, right? Which go really, really fast. Actually, not the last time that I checked. So we don't know exactly where they came from, but they came from the east. What we do know is that they're on a long journey and something is compelling them to go, to leave everything behind. What we do know is that somehow the Magi learned of this Old Testament prophecy is that when the stars would align in a very certain way, there would be one bright star known as the Star of David and it would shine over the region of Judea. It would shine over Bethlehem and that that would be where the Messiah would be born. And so they were, uh, we know that they were probably not kings, but they thought that they were some sort of astronomers or Magi or things like that and they're studying these constellations their whole life. And this is like the grand finale of their life. I mean, this is the find of the century, if not more. We have found the star of David. And so they come. And if you look again at that map, that's thousands of miles. What we do know, they didn't have to go. They could have said, oh, you know, we'll let some magi that are closer to Jerusalem handle that. Why would they travel thousands of miles unless there was something compelling them to go? Unless they knew this one was different. We cannot miss this opportunity. Something great was about to happen. They showed genuine interest in meeting the king. And I wonder this Christmas season, what might be holding you back from not just knowing some facts about this Christmas story or not just knowing some facts about this God who came to us in the form of a baby, but pursuing him, but seeking him with everything that you've got, leaving everything behind to go on this journey to meet him. How would you respond if you heard this good news, if you knew that the prophecy was being fulfilled. For me, I would say, there's a lot of excuses. I don't want to leave my priorities, my life, the way that I do things behind. I'm not going to go on this journey with hardly any food or drink or pit stops along the way. What a terrible journey. That's desert. There's nothing all the way across there. Boy, it better be worth it. And for them, it was. But if we hit pause on the story of the Magi for a second, we look closer at the story, they weren't the only ones that had a chance to respond to Jesus. There's a few other groups of people, and one of them is known as King Herod, our good friend King Herod. We read about him in the Christmas story every year. Who was this guy? Well, we know that his response wasn't like the Magi. It wasn't in genuine interest. Rather, it was in self-interest. Look again with me at verse 3. This is after the Magi have come to Jerusalem. They've arrived, and they've told King Herod that they've seen this star. And it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. 
and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And you read that and you think, oh, you know, Herod really wants to meet this king. He's really excited to go. And when he finds the king, he's going to worship him, right? Read a little bit later on in the story, we read that he doesn't want to find him to worship him. He wants to find Jesus to destroy him, to kill him. Because here's the thing. If there's a king of the Jews and he's supposed to be the ruler in that region, right? King, king, there can't be two kings. There can only be one person in authority. And so for him, this Messiah, this king of the Jews, is providing him competition. He sees Jesus not as a savior to be worshipped, but as a king that poses a threat to his lordship. And so his response isn't genuine interest, it's self-interest. And I think if we're not careful, maybe not in such a harsh way, we can do the exact same thing. We want to be the king on our own throne, the throne of our own lives as well. We want to be the director. We want to be the authority. We want to call the shots. Maybe a lot like Herod, sometimes our selfish interests can get in the way of us experiencing Christmas for what it's truly supposed to be. If you're like me, I want to be the king of my own life. I want to be the, in charge. I, I'm, I'm strong. I'm a grown adult. I got this. I know enough to make my own decisions. I'm on the throne. Nobody, none of us would ever say that. But sometimes in how we make decisions in our lives, how we view life, we're not consulting the king. <laughs> we're off doing our own thing. Oh, I got this. I can make this decision. I think I know what God would want me to do. And we never ask him. Who's on the throne of your life? Who's the king? Or maybe like Herod, for some of us, this desire is to simply use Jesus for my own interests. I want to connect with him, Herod says, so I can know where he is, so I can take him out. So I can take care of this threat. Maybe it's not like that for us, but for us, we want to use Jesus for our own self-interests as well. Think about it. If Jesus could heal me or heal my friend, then I'm interested. If Jesus could find me a spouse, <laughs> then I'd be interested. If Jesus could find me a new job, then I'd be interested. If Jesus could give me kind of warm fuzzies and make my life happy and swell all the time, then I'm, then I'm interested. And what we end up doing is we kind of treat God unknowingly like a giant uh, uh, vending machine and we punch in our desire, we put in our order and we say, this is the kind of life I would want. This is, this is the vision I have for my life and I'm going to punch that in and just pop right back out. God, give it to me. Well, then we're confusing the God of the universe with Santa Claus. His job is not to give you what you think you want. His job is to give you what you need and that's a savior. Herod wanted to use this baby for his own self-interests. I'd rather be the king, Herod says. What does that look like for you? But the wise men had genuine interest. Herod had self-interest. But there was another response to Jesus. There was also plenty of disinterest. If we look back at the story, look at verse 1 and 2 again. When the wise men arrive in Jerusalem, they're, they're looking around for the king. who They don't know. They've been traveling for months. They don't know if he's been born or not. And so they're thinking, he's a king. If he's like a Roman king, he's probably been born in the palace. 
Oh, no, 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 no. He's the king of the Jews. He's probably, born, he's probably hanging out in the temple, but he's not there. And so they come in and they, they tell uh, Herod, you know, we've seen the star. Is he born? Uh, where is he at? And it says that Herod was greatly disturbed in all of Jerusalem. So the whole town is in an uproar. What's going on? The whole town is stirred up. And yet, look at this. There's no indication that anyone else showed an interest or took the time to actually make the trip south to Bethlehem. No one except the Magi. Everybody's stirred up about it. But just like us, sometimes they miss the point. <laughs> they miss the gift that had been given to them. Even the Jews, even the religious leaders of the day that are all talking and they're all wound up about this, talking to Herod, even Jesus' own people were disinterested in his arrival because he didn't come as the conquering king riding on a horse with a sword ready to kick out the Romans like they thought he would. And I wonder if that disinterest maybe describes some of us today. Oh, it's another Christmas. I hope I can survive. Is Christmas so you can survive or is Christmas so you can thrive and know this joy and know this king? But I think sometimes... If we're honest, disinterest in this Jesus describes us as well. Do you find your life, your mind consumed with so many other things? And it's not bad. It's like some of you, we know the facts. You've listened to the sermons. You're in a Bible study. You can fill in the blanks. You can pass the quiz. But so far in your life, and I want to challenge you for a second. Is there anything in our lives that would say that we are compelled to know this baby who has been born to us intimately? As intimately as Mary knew him, right against her chest. The God of the universe listening to her heartbeat. Maybe that's what the wise men were after. Maybe that's why they took that journey of thousands of miles, because they knew there was something different. Something compelled them to pursue the king who had been born. They pursued him. But a lot of times in our lives, there's no evidence, there's no proof that we are willing to inconvenience ourselves at our own existing priorities, our own existing schedule to say, you know what, Jesus is so much more important than that. And sometimes they're not bad things, but anything other than Jesus that's on the throne of our life, Scripture calls that an idol. Oh, you say, I know my family is the most important thing. If I've got everything in line with my family, I'm going to spend all my time with them. And if I have time, I'll spend time with my Savior. And it's an idol. Oh, no, no, no. For me, it's not family, John. It's, it's my friends. I really, I'm really focused on having a good social life. I'm really worried about what people's image is of me. Am I in the right group of people? It's an idol. Oh, John, you know, for me, it's my, it's my job. If I can only find the right job, then I will be happy. Once I get settled down, once I find the job that I want, it's an idol. What's on the throne of your life? We love to put Jesus in his little compartment and say, Jesus, you are an important part of my life, but so is my job and my social life and my hobbies, you name it. And Jesus, as long as you don't interfere with any of those Area. See, the Jews have been waiting for the Messiah forever, and when he shows up, he says, Jesus, you don't fit in our box. Why would a king be born in a barnyard? That does not make any sense. 
disinterest. For these Jewish leaders and Pharisees and rabbis, Jesus was more of a theological idea, an intellectual pursuit, rather than someone to know. Facts to know, not someone they were to meet. Disinterest. So Herod is filled with self-interest. Jesus' own people, the Jews, are filled with disinterest. And I think if we're honest, that disinterest describes a lot of us in this room before we came to know Jesus, before he got a hold of our lives, before he transformed us. You might have grown up in the church and you know the facts and you put in the time, but I know for a fact that some of you, because you've told me, you said, it never went from here to here. Christmas was a holiday. It was a family tradition. And I sang all the hymns and I, and I know all the stories. But it never went from here to here. And then for some of you, you started to ask the question, what if it was real? What if all these stories in the Gospels about Jesus were real? How would that change how I live my life? Have you ever done that? Have you ever come at Scripture with a, with a fresh perspective and just read it and say, what if it was what Jesus is saying is real? What if it's reality? What if it is the defining reality of my life? How would my daily life look different? To not just be religious, but to have a relationship with this God. What would that look like to you? For some of you, I know you are sitting here today because God intervened. Some of you have told me, John, I was so far away from God. I was so far, I was like the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter and I had to run away and it would take a miracle for God to intervene. Well, that's why you're a miracle. is because you're here today, because you have a relationship with this God, because he intervened, because he came into your life. What if Jesus wasn't just some cheesy religious act, this, this thing that you go through the motions once a week, but what if the relationship with God had the power to transform your life and give meaning and purpose and joy to a life that, if we're honest, is sometimes blah? You know what I mean? Even around Christmas, sometimes we can just kind of feel blah. And I'm telling you, this Savior did not come so that your life could be blah. He came to set you free. He came to change your life. And for the wise men, he came to move them from self-interest out of disinterest to a genuine interest. A genuine interest. God is not just changing lives here today. He's been changing lives for thousands of years. And so the wise men embarked on this journey of thousands of miles and followed the star to Bethlehem with genuine interest to meet the king. And you'll notice when they first get to Jerusalem, this is so huge for us in our pursuit of God and our faith. When they get to Jerusalem and they talk to everybody and they can't find Jesus, they don't stop. They don't say, well, this is too difficult. This is too inconvenient. I came thousands of miles and now we can't find him. Where's Bethlehem, right? For pity's sakes. Nobody's ever heard of Bethlehem, right? Where is it? And I, I can imagine them, the story doesn't say this, but I would imagine them going to the palace and going to the temple, knocking on people's doors saying, we've come thousands of miles. Where is this king? We can't find him. How would you know where to look? But they didn't stop. They kept knocking. They kept asking. They kept seeking after him. What can we learn from the Magi? They didn't give up in their pursuit of God. They didn't settle for anything less than meeting him face to face. Nothing's going to get in our way. And not only were they genuinely interested, when they finally arrived at the manger that night, they were 
so overwhelmed at his presence that as the story tells us, they bowed down and they worshipped him. Pretty well-to-do astronomers from the east, probably wealthy, kneeling for an infant. I want you to picture the scene with me for a second. They're bowing down, they're worshiping, and they bring what we read, their treasures, their gifts, which this whole tradition of gift giving that all of us know so well, giving and receiving gifts, it starts right here. And I want you to notice that this tradition does not start with, what am I getting for Christmas? (laughs) What can I get? This tradition starts with, what can I bring to the king? You all know the song, Little Drummer Boy. Is there a gift that I could bring that would be fit for a king? What could we possibly offer him that would be enough? And so the wise men do the best they know how, and they bring three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And now, ladies, if you've ever given birth, if you've ever been a mother, and you're in your first few hours after delivering this child, what's the first thing on your mind that's an essential? I need this. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Totally makes sense, right? Totally practical. No! Baby wipes, diapers, baby powder, right? Milk, right? We need something to feed the kid, to wrap him up in, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Look a little deeper. Who are they coming to worship? The star told told them, it's not just any king, it's the king of kings and the lord of lords. First of all, gold. Gold reserved for kings because Jesus is the king of kings. Number two, frankincense. By its name, you can tell it's a scent. It's an incense. It's a perfume which was used by priests in the temple throughout the Old Testament. Priests were the the, the intermediaries between God and man. And they would use this incense, uh, as many Orthodox and Catholic churches still do, as they spread incense to say, we want our prayers and we want our worship to be a sweet fragrance, fragrance to God. Because Jesus is not just any priest, he's the high priest. Gold, he's the king. Frankincense, he is the priest. Jesus is the one way to God, the one way to the Father. And last but not least, the gift that you'll probably not be getting your children this Christmas. Myrrh. Everybody say myrrh. You can also say that if you're cold and you're shivering. Myrrh. Why myrrh? The most random of the three gifts, myrrh, also known as an embalming fluid for the dead. Great gift for the newborn infant, right? The next time that we read of a fragrance like myrrh is immediately following Jesus' death on the cross. And we read in John chapter 19 that as they're taking him down, the tradition was that they would you know, wrap them in, in you know, 50 pounds of burial cloth. And then they would use certain fragrances and perfumes to embalm the dead and to keep them smelling decent so it didn't you know, reek and somewhat preserve the body. One of those was myrrh. And you know the story. Jesus is wrapped They put on myrrh and other scents and fragrances, and they put him in the tomb, but he does not stay there. Jesus likes to ruin funerals, including his own, and three days later, he comes back from the dead. And obviously, we don't know exactly what happened, but I just picture Jesus standing up, 
the burial clothes falling off, and he takes that first breath of new life as the resurrected Savior. And what is the first thing that he smells? Myrrh. Could the wise men have known the significance of the gifts? I would imagine. Gifts fit for not just any king, but the king of kings. And the resurrected Jesus is walking around, and as he's appearing to different people with every step and every breath of new life, he's smelling myrrh. Gold for a king, frankincense for the great high priest, and myrrh for the ultimate sacrifice. Oh, and you thought it was just a fun little kid story. These wise guys knew what they were doing. It may sound cliche, but wise men still seek him. Wise men still bow down and worship him. Can you imagine being there on the scene at the manger that night? First magi goes and presents the gold. The second magi goes and presents the frankincense, the the beautiful smelling perfume. Imagine being the third guy. Okay, I know the significance here. This is the king of kings, and I am presenting a sacrifice, or I am presenting a gift which represents... Sacrifice, death to an infant. Imagine the scene that night and go back with me to the manger. Let's take a look. And I'm sure for the Magi, they never looked at this God the same. That Magi's small view of God, whatever it was, blown. How will you respond to the baby born in a manger this Christmas? What we learn from this small yet powerful story is that some will respond with self-interest. What can I get Jesus to do for me? (laughs) Some will respond with disinterest or apathy this Christmas. Ah, the gift, it doesn't really change anything. Some will respond like the Magi with a genuine interest, with a desire to meet the king. And we don't know a lot about the Magi, but what we do know is that when they encountered the star, something rose up in them. We know from the story, and this is probably my favorite part of the whole thing, and we just skipped right over it. In verse 10, when they're approaching the region of Judea, verse 10 says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. These Magi that had everything, encountered something that was greater than they'd ever experienced. And I don't know about you, but when I think of the word overjoyed, I think of one of those water, you know, those fountains in a park that's just bubbling up. There's so much underneath the surface. There's an abundance, and so it's overflowing. What if Christmas could be like that for you this year? What if like the Magi, when you encounter this Jesus, when you see the star that would lead you to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, something would rise up in you and you would go, ah, something that would compel you to to run underneath a tree and grab the wrapping paper and rip it off those gifts because your heart is filled with anticipation. Will you run to the manger? Will you meet the greatest of all gifts? Are you filled with joy? You, you got to remember when the angels appeared to the shepherds, what did they experience? Joy. Read it together. Read it together with me on the screen. This is what the angels say to the shepherds that night. Let's read it together with joy in our hearts. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. 
not just good news, but great news. Because you know what? That all, that includes you. Joy, not happiness that's based on circumstances of your life. Joy that's deeper than that. A joy that's for everybody. A joy that is for all mankind. All of us created for that joy. Every year we sing this song, Joy to the World. Joy to the World. And you might say, oh, it's a Christmas hymn. No, it's not. It's the the declaration of our hearts that's saying we're here to worship you, God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and nothing else matters. Nothing else can compare. Joy to the world. Let heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world. And so let's stand together, and we're going to sing it this morning like we've never sung it before. And you can clap, you can dance, and let's celebrate the joy that has come.